Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, North Carolina Poet Laureate Jackie Shelton Green reads a number of her poems, discusses her work as Poet Laureate, and shares her love of writing poetry. Jackie is the first African-American to be appointed as the North Carolina Poet Laureate. When Governor Roy Cooper appointed her in 2018, he said that Jackie brings a deep appreciation of our state's diverse communities to her role as an ambassador of North Carolina literature. Jackie starts the show reading her poem, I Know the Grandmother One Had Hands, which she wrote when leading a series of writing workshops for women on death row where the exercise was to write about the power of hands. I know the grandmother one had hands. I know the grandmother one had hands. But they were always in bowls, folding, pinching, rolling the dough, making the bread. I know the grandmother one had hands. But they were always underwater, sifting rice, bluing clothes, starching lives. I know the grandmother one had hands, but they were always in the earth, planting seeds, removing weeds, growing knives, burying sons. I know the grandmother one had hands, but they were always under the cloth, pushing it along, helping it birth into skirt, dress, curtains to lock out night. I know the grandmother one had hands, but they were always inside the hair, parting, plaiting, twisting it into rainbows. I know the grandmother one had hands, but they were always inside pockets, holding the knots, counting the twisted veins, holding on to herself, lest her hands disappear into sky. I know the grandmother one had hands, but they were always inside the clouds, poking holes for the rain to fall. Jackie Shelton Green is the author of eight collections of poetry. She's been published in over 80 national and international anthologies and featured in magazines such as Essence and Miss Magazine. As a community arts advocate, Jackie has created and facilitated programs that serve various audiences and populations, including the incarcerated, homeless, chronically and mentally ill, victims of domestic violence, public and private schools, literacy programs, immigrants, and community economic development and social justice nonprofits. 
Her awards are numerous and almost too numerous to list, but they include the Orange County Baja 2019 Light of Unity Award, 2019 North Carolina Humanities Council Caldwell Award, 2019 American Academy of Poets Laureate Fellowship, 2018 Tar Heel of the Year finalist, 2018 Indies Arts Award, 2018 North Carolina Literary and Historical Association R. Hunt Parker Award, 2014 North Carolina Literary Hall of Fame inductee, 2014 Pushcart Prize nominee, 2009 North Carolina Piedmont Laureate appointment, the African American Writers Collective Distinction Award, and the 2003 North Carolina Award for Literature, the highest award the state can bestow for significant contributions in science, literature, fine arts, and public service. Among many other teaching assignments, Jackie teaches documentary poetry at the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies and is taught in the Carlow University MFA program. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, and you came in on a rainy day from Mebbin, right? That's right, because I love you in poetry. <laughs> you love poetry. And speaking of poetry, this appointment as North Carolina Poet Laureate, congratulations for that. Thank you. Yeah, and it's been a, uh, it's, it's been a real experience for you so far? It's been very enlightening and instructive, and I'm certainly covering a lot of North Carolina um, geography, landscapes that I have not visited before. It's wonderful to meet all of these citizens of North Carolina and hear their amazing stories and encouraging them to reach deeper for sharing their stories with each other. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that in just a minute because your schedule looks kind of crazy, but the appointment itself, how did you feel when, when that came in? Well, Governor Cooper called me in the morning of my birthday, June 18th, 2018. June, June 19th. Ju- June 10th, right? June 10th, <laughs> 2018. And for those who don't know what that is, tell us the significance. So of Juneteenth June. was when slaves and enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, finally got the news that slavery had been abolished. It just took that long to reach that. It took that long. So I was born on Juneteenth, and I really liked that. That's, that's interesting. All so right. he called me on Juneteenth, which was, I think, historical in itself, and that it was my birthday. And I th- thought it was a joke. I thought it was a prank when he, uh, I answered the phone, and he said, Hi, this is Roy Cooper calling for Jackie Shelton Green. And I was being smart, and I said, <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, right, like yeah. as in my governor, Roy Cooper. And yeah. he said, like, yeah. is, like, is your refrigerator running? You better go catch it. Yeah. He said, yeah, as in your governor, <laughs> Yeah. Governor Cooper. And I was like, oh. And then I said, so how may I help you? And he said, well, I'm calling you to inform you that I have selected you as the new North Carolina Poet Laureate. Did you have any idea this was coming? No. 
and I screamed in his ear. <laughs> and then I really started screaming and crying, and it was it was quite a joyous um, a joyous moment. And who's the first person you told? Well, my husband was standing. So he heard the scream by me, and he didn't know what was going on. And he came over, and he was holding on, to holding you. his breath because he did not know why I was screaming and yeah. crying. And um, and then I, you know, the governor and I exchanged pleasantries, and I hung up. Right. And, and so, I who's the next person you call? Yeah. Uh, well, I couldn't tell anybody. Oh, that's terrible. The governor asked me <laughs> you to had please to keep a not tell anyone. Uh, until his office had an opportunity to release it. Uh, and, I, and I understand that whole media networking, the way it works, uh, the protocol for the governor making the announcement. The next morning I left for Morocco, and I'm sitting in Casablanca, Morocco, about 9 o'clock the next morning, and a woman from Durham who's traveling with me she starts screaming, and I'm thinking there's something terribly wrong at home or something. She's looking at her telephone, and she's just screaming. And I run over, and I said, what's wrong? Is everything okay? What's going on? And she looks at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, you're the poet laureate of North Carolina. <laughs> and I said, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she slapped me. <laughs> okay. Well, so that was how I found out, and yeah. then people were calling me news reporters and so what, 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 is it, what does it mean to it, it's a it's a responsibility, right? You have it is a responsibility, and, and you are. And so, what is? I assume that each poet laureate gets to sort of decide what their mission is going to be. Do, do you have? And it's a two-year appointment, so you're in your second year. Yes. That, what, what's been your mission with with all the trips and visitations and readings and workshops that you've been doing in this role? Each poet laureate does have an opportunity to decide what their platform will be. And since I'm a documentary poet, I chose this opportunity to travel across the state, working with citizens to begin to think about how they might document the poetry of their lives uh, as a community, as individuals, crossing the boundaries of, of, of race and class and gender, sexual preference, immigrants, I really wanted this to be a building community exercise that I could facilitate through poetry. And you've been all across the state? I uh, have been all across the state. Your schedule looks like it's like the president's schedule or something. You got, you got something every hour of every day. Well, I would like, like to think that my yeah. schedule is more comprehensive, more intentional, <laughs> and certainly Well, I wasn't talking about any particular president. I was just talking about the office than of Than any president. Okay, than any president. Than any president. <laughs> okay. Well, true. And so, you know, not everyone, though, comes to poetry naturally or easily because there's some complexity sometimes to the poetry. So how do you reach people through this mission of yours that maybe don't understand, um, you know, the message in some of the poems that maybe they like the lyrical sound of it, but they're not getting the point. How, how, do, you, how do you bring it to the people, so to speak? Well, my approach is to have conversations with community audiences and public audiences. For me, it's not all about me. I feel that I'm just the facilitator, I'm the messenger uh, to help people reach inside of themselves and hear themselves or see themselves in my poetry. So my poetry is very intentionally grounded in my experiences, my identity as a woman of color who grew up in the rural South, who lives in the South, who has experienced all the good, bad, 
ugly joy of the South and helping people find themselves inside of that conversation and other kinds of conversations about what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that poetry is an amazing vehicle, like the arts in general, where a bridge is constructed through the arts, where we can come and stand in all of our otherness, but that's where we find on that bridge where we connect. So that's how I bring poetics into the room. Tomorrow morning, my uh, workshop is about the poet as historian, researcher, activist, and agitator. Art should agitate in both uncomfortable and very comfortable ways. There's a sign right out here uh, from where we're recording an event co-working on one of the one of the rooms that says, Dissent is Patriotic. Yes. <laughs> and that's a little bit about what you're doing, I think. Uh, well, so I've, there's this article that appeared in the Charlotte Observer December 2018 that was talking about your appointment. And I kept it because um, I said, yeah, I, I want to I want to get Jackie on my show sometime. And finally we were able to work it out, so I appreciate you being here. But one of the things it says in here is that you you were quoted as saying that you hear and see poetry in just about anything. Is that true? Is that how your mind that's works? That's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I approach art from the perspective of the ordinariness and everydayness of art. I grew up in a community where I, where I saw people making art, making things all the time. My grandmother was a quilter. My ancestors were potters. Uh, they weren't making pots for the aesthetic of, of pottery, but they were making pots because someone needed to bring water from a creek. Someone needed a bowl for the making of bread. My grandmother made incredibly beautiful quilts, not for the aesthetic of quilting, but because we needed to be warm. And Was this the grandmother that you wrote about in your first It is. This is my maternal grandmother. Her name is Eva Tate that I write about quite a bit. Um, She is the reason that I write. Why why so? As a child, my grandmother imparted in all of us, there are five grandchildren, my brother and I being the youngest of, of the three other grandchildren. Education in my family was not an option. There never was the question do you think you want to go to college? The question was, where do you think you want to go to college? (laughs) So literacy and the power of literacy, the power of reading and writing was drilled into me very, very young. My mother's siblings were all educators, and her brother-in-law was an educator, principal, college So so is she grandmother one because she's at the top of the hierarchy for Jackie and the family or she she is she was she died many years ago but she was a very small gentle warrior you know quiet the quietude that could just she was a peacemaker uh she was a negotiator she was a businesswoman uh she was a very powerful woman who introduced me to the natural world in ways that I never would could have imagined well, she must be powerful because she can uh, poke holes in the clouds for the rain to fall. Right? That's right. Yeah. And speaking of this first reading that you did, this came about when you were instructing others in poetry, correct? Yes. T- tell us about that experience. My experience as a teacher is to learn what I teach. So whenever I'm teaching, I'm also showing up as a student. This was an exercise that I offered to women 
uh, on death row many, many years ago. For one entire year, the subject matter was to write about hands. That's the only thing I allowed them that, to write all about. That's all they could write that's about? That's all they could write about. We did visualizations <laughs> about um, the last time they touched their daughter's hair, the last time they touched their own mother's hands, uh, what love felt like inside of your palms, what anger felt like. And I wanted them to be in touch with the power of their hands that had actually landed them on death row. Women who did not know what their certainty was going to be in the years that awaited them on death row. Some were pardoned, some were still sitting there. So you are helping these women through their understanding of the power of hands and all the things that hands can do, and you are participating as well in the workshop. So you wrote this piece while you're working with these women on death row. Yes, it's instructive when I'm working with audiences, with workshop audiences, or even my students, that they see me engaged in the same process, that it, it, it kind of takes that, it balances the playground, and it takes that, you know, that, that hierarchy, that tier of I'm above them, but I enjoy being with them. For me, this exercise was really to help women think about how they redeemed themselves with themselves. It was about self-forgiveness. Um, it was about experiencing what grace could be. I am not that poet that is so intent always on the craft and the aesthetic of the good-bad poem, but the experience that that poetic experience offers to the person engaged with it. And did, um, did the women in this exercise, did they read their work aloud? And we read our work, and in addition to reading our work, there was an anthology published that this poem of mine appears in, and many of the writings of the women. And, and what do you speak to the idea of reading aloud? Because when I read your poetry in preparation for this podcast, I got one thing out of it, but when I heard you read it, you know, I'm hearing different things. So talk about the value of the spoken word. Well, I'm the messenger, and I have a background in dance. When I'm writing poetry, I feel like I'm the choreographer, much like you're the engineer right now. <laughs> I, can, I can feel and hear and see the dips and the sways and the pauses, the breaks, the reaches, the bending. And that's the joy for me is having a visceral response and a visceral uh, ongoing kind of thing going on in my bones when I'm writing. It, writing for me is very visceral. And the physiology of, of how I use words and, and how I use space and how I occupy space and how I show up in that space is what directs the voice um, and helps the metaphors and the dance of the imagery come more alive, I think, for the listener. Okay, so we're going to shift just for a second here to another topic. You've got uh, a, a poem you're going to read here in a minute that's called Communion of White Dresses. And before we read that, I just want to talk just a minute about the idea. Did you grow up in a world of white dresses? I grew up in, in a very typical, I think, traditional southern town, African-American community, um, 
And it was during the 50s and 60s. I grew, you know, I was born in 1953. Separate uh, communities from, from white people. But there was always the interconnectedness of black and white families throughout my community. So the white dresses refer to uh, my relationship to growing up in an African Methodist Episcopal church. Granddaughter uh, of a missionary who took her missionary work very serious. And just the pageantry, the, the eloquence and elegance of witnessing these women in white on Sunday. Is this a Sunday ritual, right? You wear the white right. dresses. There, are there white gloves too? Is well, white the, gloves, you know, the ushers and white. Right. But Communion Sunday was white. Yeah. And I just remember that I became an, an altar girl yeah. where I um, was responsible for helping with communion. And you wore your white dress. And I wore <laughs> the white, the traditional provincial white and white gloves. And Did it mean anything to you at that time or were you just part of the pageantry at that at that moment. When did it start to resonate with you that, that this whiteness was something that was kind of getting under your skin a little bit? Probably in my 20s I started just looking at the hypocrisy and contradictions of um, just the landscape of white and how political it was, but also how violent it was. Because those same women in all of their magnificence of white dresses on Sunday put on white uniforms and went into white women's kitchens and white dresses became something else. You know, they weren't celebrated. It also, um, for me, was just a backdrop for looking at the hypocrisy of Southern memory and um, all of the amnesia, the collective amnesia that all of us can sometimes participate in around Southern lore, uh, the, romant the romanticizing of the South. You know, when people, when some of my white writer friends write about coon dogs and hunting and white liquor and all of the things that they talk about in their South, I think about those same coon dogs chasing black men and hanging them. So just just using that background of, of white dresses to kind of put it all out there, that this whiteness being a smear. We typically think of black being a smear, but for me it was white being a smear in my, in my world. Mm. So what's the other side of the, the viewpoint for those that still wear the white dresses and, and, but still have that history and still wrestle with that as well, um, but there's they're still wearing. I mean, it's white. it's ritualistic, and and it belongs where it belongs. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not attacking. So there's two it. sides to it potentially, I guess. Yeah, and I'm sure that someone else has a totally different version sure. of, of what white dresses means for them. But for me, it was a landscape that just helped uncover, unveil, lift up mm -hmm. in a different lens mm -hmm. uh, how black bodies occupy space, mm -hmm. and black bodies and white. Uh, and when I think about white in other cultures, Brazil and other places where I am, and funeral white, it has a whole other connotation. It's power. It's power. It's purification. It's cleansing. It's that ritual. But this whiteness of white dresses was thinking about, I remember once at the altar having a very erotic thought 
about at, at the altar. And you at can't, the altar. You know, come on, come on, Jerry. Yeah. At the altar. <laughs> Having a very erotic thought. Um, well, it wasn't a white dress then. Yeah. About the lifting of white dresses. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you mentioned that in your mm-hmm. poem, and your yeah. poem is very, it's electric. I mean, it, it. You know, there's a lot packed into this piece. Uh, so, would you like to read it for us? Certainly. Yes. It's it's layered with as many images that I could bring forth. This poem is also being choreographed um, in a project, uh, a theater project, very soon. The communion of white dresses. In my dreams, I am all the women in generations of white dresses, white Sundays, that cover altars and all the hushed seams of white linen. White gloves lift, pour, sift, whispered prayers across crystal cups. Blood becomes bread. I learn to lift white dresses over my head, careful not to disturb the pleats that will soon be crushed by hungry hands. What is the difference between standing, pouring blood down the throats of phantom believers and kneeling before the parched lips of a nameless lover? White dresses bear secrets in the neckline long hem stitches. White dresses remember the language of hands lifting, stretching, folding them into the froth of a cloud forest. I am the shadow of all the white dresses hidden. I am the ghost of all the white dresses, remembering the stretch of a daughter's shroud, the dance of another daughter's wedding veil. I am the tears that hold the needle steady, while grandmothers stitch at Rapunzel of sky. I am breath that is caught in the fragrance of a mother's hair. White communion dresses wade in the holiness of a forced faith that does not rhyme with my name. I become red, fierce, bloody ocean, swallowing a procession of white dresses at dawn. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Come dance in the cloud forest. Come dress the nymphs in your long, silky strands. Come lift the skirts of thirsty virgins. Stand beneath the altar to catch all the white dresses that they are casting into the wind. My shoulders sigh under the reluctance of stiff, coarse white dresses woven with shards of prisms so tight the waist becomes prison. I want to undress my Sunday body for slow, patient redressing of Saturday night black lace, black sweat, a black promise to erase this white stain. White dresses become harsh smears, confessional cages. White dresses on my mind remind me of the unraveling of crows hiding in the elderberry tree, hiding all things shiny, all things unborn to a womb of ink. This is the tightness inside the throat of a white dress that pulls stitches tighter, that threaten mutiny. I am the night walker in white. I am the song of the legend of the woman in the white cloud forest, 
who is known to eat the lace from her sleeves, her collars, her buttons. White dresses become succor for a timeless famine. White dresses, white doves, white stones, white crosses, white veils. I am the one chosen to commit, conceal, execute, reveal, undress the sorcery, betrayal, acquisition, acquittal, the dowry of white dresses, the violence of white dresses. Cover me tenderly. All right, Jackie, um, I'm, I'm listening to you read here, and there's this line, white communion dresses weighed in the holiness of a forced faith that does not rhyme with my name. <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, colonialization and how colonizers um, across the diaspora have forced religions on, on people, stripping them of their whatever their native religions were. So I like to put these broader contexts, you know, bury them mm-hmm. inside of, um, of a poem that's not necessarily personal, but it reaches out and goes out and encompasses a historical framework. Uh, and that's the documentary poet in me um, trying to bring in as many primary sources that I can in terms of extracting what the images look like. Yeah, and you've got a metaphor here, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. Mm-hmm. It's almost, I mean, to me, my interpretation is you're kind of saying, okay, you can throw off the white dress and you can be who you are. You can't. You don't have to be trapped in this. Right, you, you know. yeah. And we um, can release this entrapment. And speaking of hair, I love your hair. You know. Thank you. <laughs> but how do you let that hair down? How do I let it down? <laughs> I let it down in my poetry. Okay, great. You know, it's, great. yeah, it's in my art. Good, good. Well, we're going to, um, before the break here, we're going to talk just a bit uh, about this concept of documentary poetry because you've got a couple of poems you're going to read after the break that, uh, that feed into that genre. You, you teach documentary poetry. I teach at the Duke Center for Documentary uh, Studies. Right, and so talk about this thing called documentary poetry and how it differs from other forms of poetry. Documentary poetry uses primary and secondary sources, source materials, uh, for the reframing, repackaging of a historical, social, personal event or a narrative. Examples being when our former poet laureate Natasha Threthaway was poet laureate of the United States. Um, She and a documentary filmmaker, photographer, went to New Orleans after Katrina and actually instead of going there as the journalist to report, she went as the poet. And Hmm. in some of her uh, videos, documentary poetry videos online, she captures a conversation with one of her cousins who has lost pretty much everything in the storm. They're at her house, and there are the remains of what is left, you know, tithing envelopes straight around, a lot of bills, you know, unpaid bills, uh, a few water-stained photographs here and there. So in documentary poetry, you can actually lift language from the primary source itself. So Natasha Threthaway was lifting lines of the cousin's conversation into 
the poems that she was writing. And I do that in some of my poetry. Yeah, we're going to do that uh, after the break here. Uh, listeners, uh, we're going to, in just a minute, we're going to come back. We're going to sort of reach back into Jackie's African-American roots. She's got a couple of poems that, uh, that, that speak to that and use this um, technique called documentary poetry. We're also going to have our writing life segment, uh, and then we're going to finish with another uh, piece that uh, she's written that became a book unto itself. So uh, stay with us, please. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. Fabi, I'm curious about your business and how you work with authors. Well, Landis, we specialize in working with professionals that have great purpose and a need to build a platform or grow a business. And you collaborate with them to help them tell their story? We do, and we find out where they are in the process, what skills they need, what resources they have, and we help them build beautiful and effective books and magazines as well. So there is a cost that goes into publishing a book but but yes. yeah but it's, it's a self-funded thing but it's an investment in order to help them share their vision their mission and their passion specifically for their business or to grow their platform yeah and you've been doing this a while and you've gotten a lot of awards how many awards have you gotten since oh you... i think if we were to count it'd be about 210 along that line yeah and you like doing this you like helping people tell their stories we do it's um it's really a, a personal passion of mine and built a business around it but it's really more to get that information and great knowledge out to specific audiences so if I've got a story to tell, uh, part of my business story or my personal story, and I want to get in touch, how do I do that? Sparkpublications.com or reach us directly at info at sparkpublications.com. So listeners, I'm back with uh, Jackie Shelton Green, the uh, North Carolina Poet Laureate, uh, in fact, the first African-American Poet Laureate, and maybe the first Poet Laureate from Mebane. Is that right, Jackie? <laughs> I think so. You think so? Um, think so? I mean, that's, that's not yeah. such a large town. You would know the answer to that. Probably. Right. I grew yeah. up in Eflin, North Carolina, so I have to give a shout out to Eflin okay. to my to my my upbringing, to the people that I belong to. I grew up in in Eflin, North Carolina, and Mebbit is only five miles away. Okay, so you didn't go far. It's uh, you stayed. I went far and I came back. Went far, yeah. I came back. You went and learned and came back home. Okay, so let's talk about. Uh, heritage and roots for just a minute because these next two poems that you're going to read in one respect they're not easy to listen to but there's there's a lot of truth in these poems um and so just talk a bit mm-hmm. about letter from the other daughter of the confederacy certainly the poem was conceived the the august night last year when um the confederate silent sam statue was toppled at UNC on the campus and it was 11 o'clock news and I'm watching the newsreel and I find myself sobbing and there's an inner voice that's kind of like what are you crying about and I realize I have a lot of conflicting mixed emotions about the self not about the statutes right. but but about yeah. the self yeah. um a South that belongs to all of us, a South that our bloods mingle historically and will continue to as long as we're here. So this poem came out of that. Um, this notion of me referring to myself as other daughter of the Confederacy comes out of a, a long-standing um, belief of me feeling like I am the other daughter of the Confederacy. And the South is yours, too. The South, is, the South belongs to me, too. 
Um, and anything that goes bump in yourself went bump in myself because mm. we're that connected. We're connected to the hip bone. So I wanted to, so, so first of all, the poem was one of those poems, like many of my poems, that just, it had a life of its own <laughs> and it showed up. Yeah, there's a lot, uh, lot going on here. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to bring onto the page as much imagery as that I could, I, that I could conjure regarding the inequity of the South. There's a reference to here to the black belt around your white waist, referring to black skin uh, that is often removed from lynchings, from bodies, as souvenirs, ears, fingers, toes, that are given to people, especially children, as good luck. So I wanted to bring in that imagery um, because it's documented. There's, there are tons of stories about it. But really, sort of my taking back a certain power um, that black people have lost in this conversation about a self. And especially, as James Baldwin would say, we should be writing about the times that we live in. And the time that I'm living in is a time when people who don't look like me and brown people and red people would like to roll back a clock, you know, roll it all the way back where... I might be enslaved again. And whereas that is frightening, I like to lift up the other side of it and use it um, as strength. And the strength comes in being a truth teller. So that's where all of my poetry lives in this zone of, of being a truth teller. And sometimes telling truths that people would rather not have or as I think of as political politeness, you know, dancing around instead of uh, instead of addressing, instead of. Well, no, nobody's going to accuse you, Jackie, of political politeness in this piece, right? Because you're, you're getting at the heart of some issues, right? Right. Yeah. right. No, I don't play political politeness. Right. Okay. Well, let's hear it. I'm. Letter from the other daughter of the Confederacy. Could I? Would I? have been your black confederate princess, emblem of truly a new dirty South, a new rag for all the wiping swiping of blood-dazzled sidewalks, trees bent heavy, heaving beneath black claws, tigers, and bears. Could I, would I, have been your black confederate concubine, sashaying a room draped in rope, teeth, Dried phalanges, pulsating throats, electric shocked eye sockets. Could I, would I, have been your black confederate dominatrix? Razor blades strapped beneath my armpits, whips growing like hair across your ribs. Your mother's mother's mother, raising out of a hell box to reclaim her name. The last of a savage cave tribe buried alive beneath a southern mansion crest. Your father's father's father does not wince in his grave 
He's known other black Confederate dominatrix, claimed flagpoles to pleasure her demands, swallowed birth certificates, census reports, Bibles to pleasure his own demands. Could I? Would I have been your black Confederate trophy, hidden inside mahogany-carved beds, hidden inside crystal flutes, hidden inside a meadow of thistle, hidden inside the elbow of an oak that knows everything, everyone, or inside an owl's nest, just a throw from the slave auctioneer's voice. Could I? Would I have been your black confederate lover? Bite me, bite me, bite me. While an entire continent roars back upon your back, our daughters are not your daughters. Our daughters are not your daughters. Our daughters are not your daughters. Let them be. Could I? Would I have been your black confederate secret? I am the names of smothered babies in the hands of mammies so black they startle the night they steal from. I am the names of all the daughters grinding and sifting grigri into your soup. I am the name of every womb you poisoned. I am the name of all your weariness, all your fear, all your disease, all the death I hold back from you. I am the life of the hundred thousand nightmares that hold you hostage to sunlight. Could I? Would I have been your black confederate truth? Once upon a black confederate lynching book, I am all the names of all the names of black skin becoming stardust, floating black snow, falling all over the porcelain nakedness of your white confederate mistress, confederate black snow, falling on the tongues of your white confederate children, black confederate skin tucked inside their pockets for good luck. I am the name of the belt you tighten around your white confederate waist, woven from my black confederate skin. Could I? Would I have been your black confederate anthem a princess without a country, the other daughter of the Confederacy, sewing bullets inside Bible pages, wrapping swords with crushed red velvet, dancing knives beneath war skirts. I am this other daughter of your Confederacy, standing bone to bone to bone to bone to all the other Confederate daughters eating the stars falling from your eyes, eyes that could not bear witness to your other daughter of your confederacy. I am that daughter, bleached bones, rotating eye sockets, searching upside down for stolen birthrights, shackled starlight, and the indescribable taste for freedom. So, Jackie, I'm curious. Um, it's one paragraph. Is, is that a feature of documentary poetry to, to kind of let the history? No. His, no, no, it's just how you chose to do it? It's a form that, that I've chosen for certain, um, for certain voices. Um, 
it's the rhythm that I hear that poem in. It's one continuous soliloquy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I use that particular form. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Well, another question I had, this is really sort of relates to the form itself and how you come about putting together a piece like this. There are some callbacks that are similar. Black Confederate princess, black Confederate dominatrix, Mm -hmm. black Confederate trophy, black Confederate lover, black Confederate secret. Do you come up with these ideas first and then work them into a piece, or do they come to you as you're writing? For this particular poem, those images, those... um, I was thinking of the black female body inside of the landscape of the Confederacy. And those are pretty much the poignant roles that we've been cast in historically. Uh, Dominatrix, uh, lover, concubine, you know, use black confederate princess um, to create the dichotomy that we would never be considered princesses of this confederacy. And then black confederate truth. Yeah. Right, because you're writing, you're writing about truth, right? Yeah. Okay, so just a, a transition to another piece um, that calls to to the past uh, a bit. You've got a poem here called I Wanted to Ask the Trees, and you told me a story before the podcast. I'd like you to share it uh, with our listeners about uh, how you came to this poem. I think there's a family story. Well, you know, I realized for a long time that um, the researcher in me is always um, digging. I have known since I was young that my father's matrilineal side of the family comes from the whole plantation in Alamance County, um, which now has a historical site in the little village of Alamance. It's a museum. And inside of that museum, upstairs in a glass case, lives a photograph of my great-grandfather, Caswell Holt. Caswell Holt and his brother were the first Alamance County Reconstruction sheriffs. The story is is that the two brothers arrested a white woman downtown Burlington for white drunkenness. For public, I'm sorry, I said white drunkenness. (laughs) For public drunkenness. For public drunkenness. By a white dude, yes. Right. For public drunkenness, two black men arresting a white woman in the 1800s. The story is is that that night the Klan came and dragged them out and lynched them. And since shooting is also a form of lynching, um, this is where historians kind of, uh, there's a lot of controversy over was Caswell actually hung or was he shot? But we know his brother died from the hanging. The oral history hand-me-down story that has been handed down is that Caswell, they both were, ha- were hung. People found Caswell still alive and, and were able to hide him. We know that he survived because Caswell, and this is all documented in, in history by historians, Caswell traveled to Washington, D.C. to testify at an anti-Klan activity hearing on Capitol Hill in the 1800s. My black family um, relatives that I am just now meeting have erected a historical marker 
on that land, this plantation land, that talks about Caswell being the first black reconstruction sheriff. When I go to that plantation, I hear the whispers of my ancestors calling out to me to tell their stories. So there Caswell lives, his photograph of him, very distinguished photograph of him, when obviously he was a freed man because in this photograph he's, he's in a black suit and a necktie. But he lives upstairs of this plantation museum and a glass case with antique leather gloves and sewing thimbles and specs, spectacles that belong to the white owners. And there he is. Across from him is a bill of sales. And there his name appears. He was mm. sold, purchased for $700. Mm. So that ground, those spirits have been begging me to tell their stories. And that is what I'm doing. So it took me a while to locate the vicinity of Earth where it is believed that my uh, great uncle died, was lynched. And I've always been interested in, lynchings have always fascinated me, not in a good way, but, in a, but just in terms of record. The record that white people have kept in terms of postcards and, and souvenirs and photographs that they mm -hmm. send around the world to friends and relatives of, of themselves as spectators at a lynching, as if it were a world fair exhibit, mm -hmm. exhibit. But I've always been more interested in the topography. What happens, what happens to the tree? What does the tree witness? What does it remember? What does it feel? What does it feel? What does the earth that receives the charred body or the blood feel? What does, what does the bird do? How does it bear witness? You know, how do the squirrels remember and carry that story? If only the trees could talk. And so you led, led you to write this piece. Yes. Uh, and the title is? I wanted to ask the trees. I wanted to ask the trees, do you remember? Were you there? Did you shudder? Did your skin cry out against the skin of my great uncle's skin? Was the smell of bark a different smell from the smell of meat flesh, human meat flesh? Beloved father, husband, lover, friend, man flesh. Could the air discern burning tongue from burning arm? Does the neck bone stay intact or grizzle like the shaft of toes, fingers, ears? I wanted to ask the trees, were you there? Did you shudder? Are you an elder that wailed out loud when they strung him up on your youngest branch? No mercy even for the lynching of new sprawling birch limbs, just learning themselves how to crawl towards an unemancipated sky. Are you a grandchild 
or great-grandchild of the tree that drank his blood, the tree that cried tears into the rope around his neck, his arms, his legs. I wanted to ask the trees. But the ground spoke first, annoying perfectly manicured azaleas, annoying perfect graves of perfect skeletons, whose blood-stained hands are forever etched on the hearts of my ancestors who cry out to me. Plantation ground scratches the soles of my feet. Ancestors beg me to lie down, be still. They waited so long for this day when someone would come and dance with their spirits. They are everywhere whispering, holding up this house that dares to ignore them, holding up a sanitized history and herstory, one for the trees, one for us. I wanted to ask the trees, do you remember? Did you refuse to hold his weight? Did your branches crackle? Did you refuse to hold him? Did you feed his blood to your roots? Who are these new trees? Look how they glisten against an unshackled firmament. Did you tell them that his blood was the only nourishment you could provide that entire season? Did you tell them it was a winter of blood? No rain, no snow, bloodstorms, lightning and thunder, lifting other names unto the wind's tongue. So many names for the wind to carry. So much hair, teeth, bones for the ground to gather. I wanted to ask the trees, who will carry your stories? Who are your historians? Who will measure the rings of ropes that wrapped around your waist, your shoulders, under your arms, beneath your head. I wanted to ask the trees, did you forget to breathe when the red thunder inside you painted everything the color of love? I want to ask the trees, do you remember? Do your branches still crackle with his weight? Do you shudder? Do you know mercy? Jackie, this is a, um, a particularly difficult topic even to think about today that people would have done these horrific acts. Um, and you've been to the land where this happened, and you've stood at the spot or close to it as best you can. I love the imagery of thinking about and talking to the trees and having the trees be somewhat accountable too for, for what's happened here. But as you're standing there, what's going through your mind when you're on that spot? The notion of erasure, how when I'm in that space, other than knowing that Caswell was there, having documentations and documents that my relatives have historians in my family have generated and the history book about this, um, they're absent. 
It's like they were never there. And this plantation was one of the largest plantations in the southeast. Uh, this plantation was responsible for probably they were, I think I can accurately say, they introduced textiles to Alamance County. But of course, their first tier of labor was slave labor. Glenn Plaid. So I think about erasure. erasure. I think about how voices, presences are muted, um, exempt from the record. When I listen to the, the um, descendants of the White Hoats talk about the greatness of great-grandfathers and uncles who built this empire, they do not talk about the presence of the slaves. And they say things to me like, this is so interesting. Well, we didn't know this part of the history. Right. Or the history, as you said. Right. But then you didn't have to know. So this image here of sprawling birch limbs just learning themselves how to crawl towards an unemancipated sky, clearly that's what it was in the time period when this terrible act happened. Um, how's the sky doing now? Hmm. I think the sky wants to recalibrate itself right now. You know, the sky is blue and and yet we know that there's something else under all of that beautiful blue. Mm. And that's why we have to keep reaching. Keep reaching, keep keep writing, mm-hmm. keep reading. Yeah. Okay, so this is a, a part of the show where I have fun uh, diving into the writing life of my guests. And uh, you, you've said from the outset that you come from a family of storytellers. And one of the stories that I picked up on, again, back to that Charlotte Observer article, was when you were very young, you used to write poetry at a very young age, and you'd stick your poems in jars and bury them in the yard, right? <laughs> I, I, I have this memory of being very young, and it's summertime, and of course I have no idea what I'm doing. But I know that I'm writing on little strips of paper and folding them up and putting them in jars and digging holes in my aunt's I mean, is this, is this like a, a dog with their bone? You want to protect it, and you're hiding it so no one will find it? Is yeah. It? <laughs> and I and so I'm I'm a kid. I mean I'm yeah. very young, and I think when I was around sixteen, I decided I would dig them up. But of course, I did not understand gravity and how yeah. the earth shifts. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you couldn't find your poems. So, find so your my poems jobs. are now feeding the earth and the grass and the yeah, flowers a, and the trees. That's a sweet metaphor. Yeah. Um, but somewhere, somewhere, you know, in that subterranean of. My aunt's yard are these floating words, mm. you know. I was pretty young. You know, that's when one letter takes up an entire sheet of paper when you're mm. trying to write mm-hmm. as a kid. But I always knew, um, thanks to my grandmother, I, my grandmother directed me towards writing. I always wanted to be an oceanographer, even though I did not know where the ocean lived. You, you never weren't very been close to the, to the ocean. ocean, though, an elf. No, <laughs> but I wanted to be an oceanographer because I loved Jacques Cousteau, and, okay. and I was obsessed with, with his under, under, under the sea. The underwater world. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm just obsessed, and I still am. But So you start with your grandmother. She inspires you to write. Yeah, my grandmother <laughs> inspires me to write. And, and so this, you know, most books and poems have an arc to them. What's been the arc of your writing story? It's been a place, and I've said this before, of truth-telling. It's been a place of, 
of of gathering and collecting. I look at myself as a squirrel sometimes, just bringing get, get, all gathering the, pieces, the nuts for the winter. Yeah. Just gathering everything. Yeah. I mean, I have gathered so many stories, so much fodder to work with. I don't know if I will even have enough lifetimes to to write all that I want to write. But this gathering process is what feeds me, and that's what I've been doing. And the arc of that writing is the excitement of seeing how poetry changes lives, the, the healing aspect of poetry. I'm excited about my students, my university students, and how they embrace writing. But I'm also equally excited about how newly literate writers have the same experiences with the same materials, mm. uh, or children, and people who don't believe their stories are worthy, that they have a place, you know, in this culture that anyone would want to hear their stories. So we don't have time for a whole workshop. You do these workshops, but I do have a question about process because I have the North Carolina Poet Laureate, you know, just the two of us in a room here. And so when you're writing a poem, can you just give us uh, a little insight into your process? The first thing I don't do is I do not edit as I'm writing. I don't believe in shooting the messenger. I just let it, I let it rip. I let it <laughs> I like flow. That. Don't shoot the first draft messenger, right. right? But I spend an enormous amount of time revising, revision. Some of my poems go through a dozen revisions, depending on the work. I look back on some of my earlier work, and I was like, who in the world let me publish that poem <laughs> like it was? All right, but that can, that can be your own worst enemy sometimes. How do you know when to stop editing, right? So that has come natural for okay, me. Right. I've had really good editors. I've been blessed to have really good publishers. I still have really good publishers. Uh, Andrea Selch, Richard Crowick, Carolina Wren Press, Jakar Press have been two people who have taught me uh, the brilliance and the importance of being your own editor. Um, I have readers, and there are a few people in my circle that I trust to edit my work. Um, but I, I have to put myself to the test first and I have my own bullshit meter. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, if I've stretched the image as far as, yeah. as I know. You say, come on, Jackie, that's a little too much there or you pull yourself back a little bit. Or pull myself back. I mean, I, 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 I just know when it's right. Mm. There was a poem that my publisher and I, we're just at odds about, I kept saying it's not right. And she kept saying, it's per like, no, it's not right. <laughs> and she said, well, it better be right. Yeah, because we're going to publish By eight o'clock in the morning because we're going to press. <laughs> yeah. And I stayed up all night and then, and I knew when it was right. Good, good. So, so speaking of this, I mean, you've been writing a lot. You've had a lot published. Um, what would you tell your younger writer self, uh, something that you've learned, you know, these many years later? if you could reach back and educate yourself when you were a young writer? Being present, not allowing people to disenfranchise your voice, um, standing up inside of and owning your, your narratives. Um, I have experienced so much in these 40-some years of, 
of having a public presence as a writer that the first thing is is you have to know your voice. You have to find your voice and not try and sound like people that have mentored you or I, I, I see how some writers are, their voices are like squeaky clean after MFA programs. Mm. And you try to make them all into one formula. Yeah, yeah and, and, and just kind of like resisting formulaic writing. Uh, finding your voice, understanding that that's your voice and owning it. I think too many times, I remember in my 20s, people saying, well, you know, you don't sound like Nikki Giovanni. And I was like, I'm not supposed to. And she doesn't sound like me because she's not supposed to. Um, yeah, not not getting caught up um, in this kind of Eurocentric sensibility of what poetry looks like. And thankfully, we are, I think, in a revolution of poetics when poet, poets are coming from everywhere and the voice is changing, the paradigm is changing. The rules have changed. Many of us are stretching those rules as far as we can stretch mm. them. So final uh, writing life question is two-part question. Um, how does poetry feed you, Jackie, and how do you try to prepare your words to feed others? Thank you. It's my lifeline. I think it's my lifeline to other people. It's, it's going back to that bridge that we construct through our writing. It's, it's building that bridge. It's reaching out through words that the words become an olive branch. Uh, and I have stories that have stretched across some pretty serious polarized spaces where I never would have thought um, that that particular audience would be reading my poetry and finding themselves inside of it. I write for the possibilities of building a better world for the medicine that poetry brings to all of us. And I write because I don't know what else I would do. Mm, that's great. That's a great message and a, a great one to take out to the citizens of North Carolina. Before we do your final poem, I'm just curious, if people want to learn more about North Carolina Poet Laureate and what they do, and where, where, where do they go to find information about that? The North Carolina Arts Council would be the place um, the North Carolina Arts Council sort of manages the Poet Laureate. Um, if you're interested in bringing me to your community, the North Carolina Arts Council is your first step. Right. Go to their website, click on how to bring the North Carolina Poet Laureate to your community. All right, so we're going to finish today. It's not, I would say it's, we're not going to finish on a happy note necessarily, but we're going to finish on uh, a, another truth in your life. Uh, you had a devastating uh, loss in your family. You, you lost your daughter to cancer. So tell us, uh, Jackie, um, about your daughter and this book and this poem that you've written. My daughter Imani died at the age of 38. She died in 2009. An amazing, powerful young woman, very witty, who was not supposed to die. I did not write after Imani died. She died in 2009. I wanted to write, but I couldn't write. Um, and around 2016, I think this book came out in 2017, um, I was looking for something in my study on a bookshelf, and 
and a, a journal fell on my foot. I picked it up. I didn't recognize the journal. I opened the journal, and I then remembered that I'd started this journal the day she was diagnosed with cancer, and the last entry was the morning she died. Next to my journal that I did not remember that I even owned was Imani's journal. And I sat with these two journals, and it was like a conversation between the two of us. But this poem started coming to me every morning, like at 4 a.m. I mean, every morning, clockwork, this line, I want to undie you, just kept over and over showing up. And I was writing. I, I composed this entire book on my cell phone. In the dark, 4 o'clock in the morning, just writing what spirit was. Now, are you, are you an early riser, or, or, or was this idea... No, the poem was waking me up. The poem was waking me up. Yeah, okay. the poem. Okay. The poem was waking me up. So we've got, it's, it, there's one page here which has a heading to it that's in bold, and that heading is? I want to undie you. All right, let's read that if you would, please. I want to undie you. Come back, said the mother. I want you to undie. I want the dust of you unscattered. I want the hush of you unhushed. I want the cries for you uncried. I want you to undie. I want the tomb of you untombed. I want the dirge of you unsung. I want the grief of you ungrieved. The clock of you unstopped. The length of you unfolded. I want the scars of you unscarred. I want the road of you untraveled. I want the fret of you unfretted. The prayers of you unprayed. I want the scream of you unscreamed. I want the verb of you unverbed. I want the slumber of you unslept. I want the shroud of you unshrouded. I want the earth of you unbroken. The river of you unflowed. The desert of you unbarren. I want to unmourning that morning. I want to unbreak the broken of you. I want to unconfuse the confusion of you. Undiagnose the diagnosis of you. Unsteal the stolen of you. Unmurder the murdered of you. Unbutcher the butchered of you. Unwound the wounded of you. Unbound the bondage of you. Unsterilize the sterility of you. Undeny a life denied to you. Unseal the sealed of you. Unmask the mask of you. Unveil the veils of you. Unexposed exposed of you. Unsacrifice the sacrifice of you. Unerase the erasure of you. Unlock the locked of you. Untake the taking of you. Unsteal the stillness of you. So, Jackie, this is, in one respect, could be like, you know, let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to a time when you were here. Mm -hmm. You were part of our family. Um, but then there's the grief part and trying to get beyond that and, and to the happy memories, too. So I'm sorry for your loss. 
I know it's probably still ever present with you. There's other parts of this poem that you read. You can find where Jackie's at the grave and you're learning things and hearing things as you walk the, Mm -hmm. walk the ground. Um, is it hard Jackie to write? Um, we talked a lot about truth in poetry and a lot of your truths, uh, have, you know, sad emotions that go with them. Mm -hmm. Is, Is it hard to, to write that and after you've written it is it hard to reread it again like for now is it hard to read this book is always difficult and challenging but I feel like this this poem is Imani's scent um, Imani is very much with us all the time uh, she was funny she was witty she had a very warped sense of humor <laughs> um that's I mean, a great memory. She was yeah. just witty. Yeah. And I mean, there are times like at holiday gatherings when stuff will happen. And my daughter will be like, you know, Imani did that. Like, you know, like she screwed yeah. up the dressing or, <laughs> you know, um, there are times when we very, very much know when she's present. But I, I feel like she helped me write this book. Mm. And I feel like she was nudging me, saying it's time. And I really want it to hold her in a reverent space. Um, right up until the moment she died, Imani was present. And if, you know, that term, dying on one terms, she um, embraced her death the way one embraces life. And I remember a long time ago, my father saying, if you're afraid to die, then you're afraid to live. And what Imani showed us all, was she showed us how to live. And um, this book, I Want to Undie You, is the language I think that many of us feel inside of us, but our culture does not give us a permission to really grieve. I mean, I cannot count how many people wanted me to be over it. And I read accounts of other parents and uh, people who have lost loved ones, not necessarily children, but maybe spouses and and friends and other family wanting them to hurry up and be done. Um, it's a sacred process. It's a gift. And if we don't grieve, we don't heal. So to be able to um, to go through this, and I'm grateful that I have poetry. I'm grateful that I can make these containers where the grief can live, where it can be stored, so I don't have to carry it. Well, Jackie, um, I'm grateful, and I know the uh, citizens of North Carolina are grateful that uh, you're our Poet Laureate now, and I uh, also appreciate the fact that you came down here from Mebane with uh, with your husband, who's dutifully waiting off to the side here while we, while we record this podcast. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for an Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. 
And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.